Welcome to the Bovine Banter with the Penn State Extension Verity. Hello everyone, my name is Adrian Bergen and I am Assistant Clinical Professor and Extension Veterinarian within the Department of Veterinary and Biomedical Sciences at Penn State. I would like to welcome our speakers today, Dr. Kevin Harbertin and Nathan Olenyak. Today, we'll be discussing precision nutrition practices to wrap up our podcast series regarding the Protecting Your Land, Protecting Your Profit thing. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Harvestin and Nate. Dr. Harvestin, could you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at Penn State? Yes. Uh, first, thank you for, for having me on. Uh, so I'm a professor here in the animal science department. Uh, my interest really is how nutrition impacts uh, milk synthesis and milk production. Uh, most of our focus is around milk fat and a number of other aspects, but really interested in how, uh, how we can use nutrition to change milk yield and milk composition. Great. Thank you, Dr. Harvesty. Nate, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your role at Wogley Farm? Sure. Uh, again, my name is Nate Aleniak. Thanks again for having me for this. Uh, Leroy basically passed me an email and said, here, take care of this for us, please. Um, so my role at the Walkley Farm is their nutritionist. I've been their uh, dairy nutritionist for close to five years now. Um, today, the farm's milking around 310 cows. They have a 350 um, tow- cows total and raise about 280 heifers. Um, they raise all their crops as far as corn silage and triticale. Most of the ground is double cropped. And then they do keep some acres for some dry hay that we feed specifically to heifers. Um, because we actually are, don't have enough tillable ground, um, we don't feed the corn silage to heifers at all. So it creates a little bit of a, a change in nutrition for those heifers um, specifically. Um, the farm itself today is um, running around six and a half pounds of component milk. Uh, we've been seeing production really pretty steadily even since last year in the upper 80s, lower 90s, and just extreme components. Uh, it's not untypical for the farm to run a 4-1 to a 3-3 to a 4-3 fat and a 3-2 to a 3-4, sometimes a 3-4-5 protein in the last year, um, which has been really great considering COVID as far as the protein numbers because it's been the the large payer in the, their milk checks. So uh, we really try to dial stuff in and, and get as close to what we can do. Uh, one, to be profitable, and two, to keep the next generation running. Uh, there's three, four family members there, Leroy and Brenda. They originally started the farm um, about in the current location in Lower York, Adams County there uh, about 20-some years ago. And then there's some Brad as the herdsman and Brad's wife, uh, also joins him on the farm, and she she has the task of milking the third shift uh, uh, for the cows, which is uh, around 10 o'clock at night. So so she gets some big thumbs up for that. So uh, that's kind of a the overview of walkers and what I do for them. Awesome. Thank you so much, Nate. Uh, definitely an incredible performance. I'm sure that a lot of the nutritional management that we'll be discussing today has a lot to do with that. So that is a, a perfect sort of information to introduce to, to our topic for today's podcast. And with that in mind, I'm going to ask Dr. Harvesting if he could explain a little bit to our listeners what actually precision nutrition means. Yeah, so that's a really interesting question because precision nutrition can kind of mean 
a, a number of different things to to different people. Um, so, so really, in, in the broad sense of the term, what we're trying to do is to meet the requirements of that cow as closely and consistently as, as we can. And there's a lot of different approaches that can help us, help us do that. Uh, so traditionally, we've, we've thought about nitrogen uh, balances, so basically balancing uh, protein in the diet so that we're meeting protein requirements. Uh, but not exceeding them, so then we reduce the amount of nitrogen that we're losing in, a, in our manure. Um, at one time, there's a lot of discussion around phosphorus on the nutrition side. I think we've done about all we can in reducing phosphorus in, in our diets, but of course that's important to, to control phosphorus in our manure for nutrient management plants that are based on, on phosphorus. And I think just from the, the bigger picture is, is kind of optimizing nutrition. I, I like to call this the, the opposite of the price is right. So, so when we're balancing these diets and trying to meet requirements for that cow, we're trying to be as close to her requirements as we can be without going below. Because if we go below, then we actually start losing production. And there's a cost economically to the farm to do that. But then there's also an environmental impact to that because we just need more cows to make that, that milk production. Great overview of this important concept and practice that we definitely need to keep working on. So with that being said, uh, Nate, could you please mention a few of the precision nutrition practices that Wogley Farms are implemented in the, in the present? And uh, what are some of the most common challenges, if any, that you have seen of applying this technology at, at Wogley? Sure, no problem. Um, and I think I'll probably work a little bit here in the reverse of what Dr. Harvatine gave us. And just really starting with that optimizing nutrition and meeting that requirement need. Um, these cows, you know, we, we tried many different things. And, and when it comes to feeding cows there every day, we um, opened ourselves up to being really welcoming to like any ingredient we could and and building a basis to that and within the last year we've actually built a feed center um, to give us more flexibility as we look at nutrients and what they do to the environment and how we provide them to the cow um, so we can break things apart of course we'll have, you know our fine ground corn and and especially around that nitrogen spot you know when you talk about your proteins we're able to wiggle around that a little bit we have bins where we can put you know soybean meal and your bypass proteins and and canola and 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 change that around but then um specifically even with you adrian when it came we worked with you there oh pre-covid i guess i'll say is you know we we wanted to work specifically on this transition cow not only in the model but what happens in that first 60 days of lactation and i'll be honest that that gave us a big leg up and specifically for me when i go down to to balance that ration, how close can we get? And what is that kind of cow going to do? So we knew early in lactation what the requirement was and how we could balance it. And with all that said, when you optimize those those rations out, is you need to know, you know, what am I balancing for? What components am I going to get? What is this cow's body weight? How long is she walking to the parlor? I think those are things. It, incredibly important to to be even before we get to the environmental impacts that are going to get us the right nutrients and the right and the right specs and and i'll just say now that a fresh group's been in place almost two years come this july it's been the greatest thing for them that 
that ever happened. I think uh, one, it gave the cows a better playing field to get out and about. And then um, when they hit that next ration, they just run to the races. So each diet that we have there, we really are watching that composition. I would say the phosphorus levels, when you talk about those and what they do to the environment, you know, I, I guess I'll disagree with Dr. Harvatine a little bit. I think there is still work out there to do from a nutrition standpoint on that. I, we still live in the Chesapeake Bay. We still have counterparts to our north that are plugging phosphorus into these diets when it's probably not needed. Um, so I would be more cautious to you know everyone that we could still do more, um, especially for the Bay Project when it comes to phosphorus. Nitrogen aspect, uh, a little different there. You know, we have monkeyed with the protein levels at walkers specifically. Um, where can we save and what can we do to minimize impacts? Gets a little uh, dicier, in my opinion. And that just becomes the fact where we want this rumen and that cow to run full steam all the time. Um, so you do kind of, we'll push the envelope and get a little low and you'll see it immediately. The cows will back off. And when you, you put it back in, you know, and you can run in the lower 16s and mid 16s for, you know, your crew protein, as long as your metabolizable protein is in the right aspect, will cruise. And that's kind of what we've been seeing uh, long-term there. Uh, so, you know, the nitrogen can be a little hold back sometimes, but the goal for us is that we can get that cow healthy enough that we're getting the best out of her reproduction becomes sound. And sometimes nitrogen just is needed a little more in those diets. So that's the harder aspect to it, but they do a lot, even on the farm to minimize that they're, they're recycling water for their flush barns. Um, they're working with an agronomist full time and the agronomist aspect of that's been huge about what their soil really needs especially since they're in the part of York County, which doesn't have the greatest soils. Um, so we've been really blessed with that. And uh, I just say, again, every day is a little different, but um, you, if we can meet the needs of that cow every day from the weight that she is to the end game throughout that lactation, we can save a pile of money as long as you're open to what the requirements are and what, what you can use to best benefit your pocketbook on that as well. So. Great. Thank you, Nate. Definitely good tips and good practices there based on, on what Dr. Harvesting was mentioning about. Uh, one of the main features of this uh, practice is just having different rations for a specific cow's category definitely is a beneficial practice that could be applied towards these precision nutritionists as cows will have different nutritional requirements in different stages of their production cycle. Going back to you, Dr. Harvesting, Based on your experience, how widely is precision nutrition being implemented in the dairy farms in Pennsylvania? Yeah, so so I guess the way I look at it is that precision nutrition's not exactly like a yes no type type question, right? So so I, I I would argue that probably everyone is is practicing some aspects of of precision nutrition, and and I think this is really a continuum from from you know just getting started and making sure you have a nutritionist and are thinking about about those first steps going all the way through to zeroing in um, as much as you can so so i think everybody's kind of somewhere on that continuum and there the end there's also so many different aspects that come into this that that you could be really doing well in one area but there's still opportunities in in another um, so if we just kind of think through 
uh, what some of those big opportunities are. You, you've mentioned multiple diets. So we, we still have a, a lot of herds feeding what we call a one herd TMR. Um, you know, our, our first opportunity would be getting a fresh diet. That, that's really important. And even I know we have a lot of small farms that it's hard to get that, that second batch. If we can just have a top off for those, those fresh cows. So within a tie stall barn, or if we can get those separated in a small freestall barn, you know, e even the first step of getting some extra expeller soybean meal to those cows that there's been some recent work really showing that that low intake and early, early lactation, those cows need, need a bit of extra protein. So, so that would be the first step, getting the fresh group. Uh, then, then moving beyond there, I, we, we always joke that, uh, the academic nutritionists love multiple groups and multiple TMRs that, that, that we, we kind of see a lot of areas that we could zoom in on. Uh, but in the real world, there's a lot of uh, benefit to keeping it simple and having fewer TMRs. Um, you know, there, I think there is a benefit to moving to a high and a low TMR. Uh, and I, we, we like to say if you walk out in the barn and in the nutritionist balance duration for that 90 pound cow or 85 pound cow, whatever they're balancing for, you can find that cow in the barn, but then look around at the rest of the cows and it is their diet balanced. And, you know, the cows make up for that increasing and decreasing intake a, a little bit, but we, we certainly can, we certainly have more opportunities. Um, it's just a matter of, of the, the challenges that come with that. And, and I would just say, I think we need to also have a whole farm view of this. So adding more diets isn't going to help if you don't have good scales and you're not doing a good job uh, getting a good, good mix, accurate mix going into the mixer. So, so I just don't want to focus on the paper and what the nutritionist can do, but kind of looking at, at the whole farm. Great tips, Dr. Avertin, and I agree 100% with your last uh, statement. Quite often, at least to my experience, the nutrition is, is exactly right, and there's nothing to address in that nutrition, nothing to change, but instead of the diet management, delivery, mixing, and things like that, easy, easy things to fix that we just forget to look at it, and uh, we always have to look at the, at the bigger picture. So now going back to Nate, what are some of the, I know you mentioned some of the benefits, but what are some of the main ones that you would like the audience to know about implementing this technology, perhaps from the profit point of view or from the cow health point of view? So I'll, I'll just dive right in. Um, Dr. Harvard Dean was talking about, you know, that fresh cow group, and we just touched on it in the beginning. Uh, but I'll tell you, that has been just the key to, to really what's turned the walk leaf farm over the last um, two years now. And, and that diet is formulated for an 80 pound cow at, at 30 and 38 and a half pound intake, dry matter intake, um, really focusing on, on that higher end of metabolizable protein, but getting that, getting that really dialed in and, and watching that cow progress. Uh, you know, we don't want these cows to to lose any weight or anything like that. Um, just really try to maintain. Now, we know there is some weight loss no matter what, but just really getting that dense enough that to really see the full benefit. And 
we've kind of done we've done that at walkers i think we can get cows uh, we're a little limited on space <laughs> um i think most farms are limited on space but we can really dial that in on that diet and uh they can stay there for 30 or 35 days and then the next phase they go to is that high cow group um though we put a little more money into that into that fresh cow diet, by the time they go to that high cow diet, we've actually um, lowered our costs a little bit, which is really, really interesting to see and then see that cow perform uh, on, on that farm end. So um, we'll run four diets there. Uh, we run a fresh cow group, a high, two high cow groups, a two-year-old group, so they, they're own, in their own parity. Um, and we're in discussions maybe about trying to keep our second lactation cows uh, in, a, in, a, in a modified group too. Uh, there's some research out there maybe that we can uh, uh, help them out a little bit in the second lactation too. So it's something that we're observing. So there's an opportunity um, as well. We do have a low cow group, but, you know, as Kevin said earlier, you know, uh, opportunities. Well, we're at the point now where that's probably going to look more a modified two-year-old group. Um, it's just we changed the herd dynamics there because of the fresh group with, and, and with that fresh group came huge leaps and bounds in reproduction. So things continue to change, but what we do know is constant in the, is that the cows tell the story. And I'm a data junkie, so I don't really rely on what the computer tells me to spit out. <laughs> um, the cow is going to tell me what's happening and I'm boots on the ground all, every week at that facility. So I, I can see what's happening. Uh, today I had my visit there at eight o'clock and kind of got to see what was going on. And I was pretty excited today just to walk through the fresh cow group uh, and see that. So yeah, there's always that opportunity to change something. But we, we do see with those, those multi diets is the opportunity to save costs. And, and when you're looking at high feed prices, what we've seen come into the winter, and through spring here with um, possibility of, you know, uh, the experts think, well, we might not have enough soybean meal to crush. Well, that, that's a little concerning. So we're, you know, we're going to watch that every step of the way. And this is where those multi, multi-group diets really can be a benefit to us as well. And, and minimize and be minimal in our environmental impact, especially when you look at nitrogen and those one cow groups, uh, you know, they're just spitting it right on out. So we want to be cognizant and of that and, and know what's going on. Um, but there's tremendous benefits. The farm point of view, you know, again, I mentioned their feed center, that accuracy, like Dr. Harvatine mentioned, we have like zero shrink now because of, of how we've set up commodities and, and what happens there. The only thing we really, really may lose on is a little bit of corn silage because most of it is in ag bags and some traded cows. So, um, you know, we really, really watch everything from the, from the time it arrives on the farm to the time it gets put in the cow. That's just super important to us. That makes a lot of sense to me, at least, especially when you talk about these multi-diets and transition cow and nutritional management, you definitely will see the benefit on the performance of those animals from milk production to fertility. So I can imagine even that alone, it will be a great benefit for the farm as well. To wrap up this uh, podcast, I'm going to end with a question to Dr. Harvesting. Can let us know a little bit about what are some of the main specific benefits that these practices have in the environment? 
I'd kind of like to expand out our, our thinking on the environmental impact. So I know traditionally what we've looked at is is what's in the manure lagoon, right? And and how many pounds of nitrogen and phosphorus are we putting out in our fields? But but I think if we if we kind of zoom out and look at our system, we have an environmental impact of the inputs of that feed coming coming onto the farm. Uh, we have the environmental impact of the manure. And then the other thing is we're producing human food, right? So we, we are an essential, essential function there. So, so I think we, we have uh, multiple places we can have environmental impact, and we also have multiple stakeholders. So we have our local environment. We, we, we want to keep our own wells clean. We have the Chesapeake Bay and our waterways that we want to contribute there, and we have a, a local regional stakeholder there. But then we're also selling this milk and our consumer is interested in having uh, a small environmental impact of the food they're, they're consuming. So if we kind of circle back to the input side, you know, it, coming back to the phosphorus part, you know, we, we, we talk about phosphorus as a pollutant, but we also should realize that phosphorus is a limited resource. We mine phosphorus and, and there's only so much of it there in, in the, the numbers vary, but but some of the estimates are we may only have you know 50 to 200 years of phosphorus available. Now that may sound like a long time, but after that it's gone, and and we we need phosphorus to to uh, run agriculture, right? So so that's an environmental impact. Actually, if we can reduce phosphorus use, we're reducing that mining, we're conserving that resource, but then we're also reducing our environmental impact on on the watershed. Uh, talking about nitrogen, you know, we're, we're trying to reduce excretion, but then if we can, through precision nutrition, switch to using more homegrown protein sources, uh, that creates some better nitrogen recycling within that farm. We're not importing all of that, that protein in, in soybean meal. Um, so that really improves our environmental impact there. So, so really a, a lot of benefits where we can become more efficient in sort of that life cycle of where we're getting our inputs, having less of an effect uh, of, of our manure on our, our watersheds. And then if we get all that done right, we're going to reduce the environmental impact of, of making that the milk for that ice cream cone for our consumer. Excellent. I think that those are more than enough reasons, at least to me, to keep working on this area with these excellent practices. Thanks again, Dr. Harvestin and Nate, for joining us today to talk about these important management practices. This is the last episode of our third podcast series. Please stay tuned for the following podcast series that will start on April 20th and where we will be covering important aspects of forage and production management.